you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now on Fast, it is a countdown to Christmas and Black Friday. Retail's been on a pretty big run this quarter, but will a consumer saddled with a stocking full of credit card debt be sidelined for holiday shopping? Plus, harvesting gains, shares of deer soaring as high as an elephant's eye, up more than 180% since the start of the pandemic. Can you still plant new capital in this ag name? And later, fresh COVID troubles in China. Violent protests at a major apple plant as tensions rise over harsh COVID restrictions. What impact could this have on the stock and other companies leveraged to China? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the NASDAQ market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Guy Dami, Steve Grasso, and Julie Beal. We start off with a pre-holiday bump for markets. Major indices taking a leg higher after the latest Fed minutes suggested the central bank could slow the pace of rate hikes soon. The Nasdaq leading the gains up nearly a percent. The Dow posting its highest close since April. Meantime, Treasury yields and the dollar both dropping. And gold made a move higher. But as we head into the all-important holiday season, where do we go from here? We're below 3.7 on the 10-year yield, Tim. And the question on long-term yields is, are we at a place where we now have some sense of the Fed peaking and where you can push out the duration curve and without getting too wonky into bond parlance? I think the most important things for the market today were the dollar continuing to trend lower. Remember, the dollar was trending lower even before we get that Fed announcement. But I do think this is a Fed that's found a way to let us know that 50 is not so bad in December and that the dynamics around wait and see are things that they're still debating. That to this point, it was something they knew what they were going to do. And it really does feel like it's a little bit more data dependent. You know, back to this S&P, that's a 15 and percent move off of that CPI October 13 low. Um, remember, we had a almost 19 percent move back from June to August. So this market's giving you trading opportunities. We're right up near that 200 day. You draw that down trend line from the beginning of the year. And it looks like we're just about there. Now, look, this is a market based upon these seasonals and based upon positioning. Uh, does it take it out? I don't know, but it's certainly been, the, the tailwinds here are there, especially with the Fed in a different place. Yeah, yield being at about 3.7% for most of the session, Julie, seems to have given permission to the higher multiple names to go higher, the ARC names, the software names, semiconductors, et cetera. You think that's, a, that's, that's right? I, you know, I think there's so much desire to get back into those names. Those have been winners for people and they want to have that rekindle that story and be that excitement. You know, I think what should be driving these businesses long term is just regular fundamentals. And for some of them, their fortunes look wonderful. And for some of them, they look pretty challenged. Um, I think the market structures of these businesses is the most important thing to keep in mind. And I think having a little less exposure to the consumer is something that's really important. Yeah. Guy, what'd you make of the uh, the action today? You know, ahead of Thanksgiving, it's interesting. At one point today, we were negative, but it's not surprising that we're here. You know, we thought we'd test sort of the 200-day moving average that Jim talked about. I think that comes around 4065 or so in the S&P. Still in this significant downtrend since November, as Tim said. And this is a mirror image of what we saw back in June into I guess, or June into August, I guess. And this is playing out right before our very eyes. I'll say this. Tim has spoken of this as well. A VIX at 20 and a half to me, that's the warning signal. It's not a VIX at 34. The VIX at 34 is when you're seizing the opportunity, as we said a number of times. But a VIX at 20 and a half to me says, you know what, we're slowly topping out. 
and two tens at now 75, approaching 80 basis points, probably on their way to 1% inverted, does not, to me, flash the green light for stocks. He's yeah. not happy going into the holiday, by the way. It's almost it's, like you gave him a gobble-gobble Well, or it's something. like our, really you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's hump <laughs> I'm day. happy. I'm it's happy as can be. It's gobble-gobble no. day. I mean, what, there's... It's so many things to be happy about. Can I tell about. you, listen, yes. because, listen, yes, and I'm going to just, I'll share the inside baseball stuff. So Nancy Primavera, our incredible floor director, she had a couple people come in my ear and say, gobble, gobble, guy, have a great turkey day on hump day, just to, just to team me up right before the show. Just saying. No wonder yeah. you're so happy. And it worked. It worked like a charm <laughs> every year. Steve Grasso, um, you know, it's interesting. We're, we're so fixated on what the terminal rate is, and maybe we got, you know, a better clue as to where that could be, maybe 5%, which is what the markets are pricing in right now at this point. Um, but how long we stay at that rate seems to be the next question to ask that not many people are asking. And, and no one's talking about quantitative tightening. No one's talking about the balance sheet yeah. runoff. No one's talking about that that's 25 basis points right there. So they are tightening more than anyone even knows that they're <coughs> tightening. But I think going into year end, performance, performance chase. You're going to see people trip over themselves. So Julie talked about fundamentals on these companies, uh, on, the, uh, on the high flyers. Throw that out the window. We're not talking about performance until Jan 1. There's nobody that even thinks about performance right now. Think about how bad every fund's performance is this year, unless you're weighted to energy. So you have to make up a lot of ground. You want to chase and window dress right up until year end. So what does that mean? What, what, is, the, what is the artificial means, bid in the market for stuff? Okay. Wow. Between, yeah, between, that means 40, between, 50, 40, between now and year end? Yeah, I, th I think you're going to see a, a, a face rip. And you, and you know what, Tim? Remember all, all the things that we learned about? Never, never short adult tape. Volume's light. It drifts up higher. I think, guys, right? I think you're right. Warning signs are the VIX. There's going to be a day of reckoning when we start worrying about earnings. But we're not going to worry about that until Q1. So I think people are behind the eight ball. They have to chase, and they have to chase beta. So you're well, going to see them rip the market higher. Yeah, I, I, I've said this a few times, and I, and I know this as a fund manager. It's the downtrends that are really scary, but it's the uptrends that sometimes are scarier. Because if, if you don't uh, make money in the uptrends, if you've been overly defensive, if you've been in cash, God forbid, um, that's usually when managers get fired. So I, I think that's the environment. I just want to point out also that last night we spent a lot of time talking about retail. Excited to hear Walmart, former CEO um, Bill Simon on. But, but we talked about consumer trends on both credit and, and in terms of the savings rate. And, and there's, there may be a chart out there that I that I threw up there, which is one that basically just shows we're at a complete divergence right now. There was a time coming out of the crisis. Everybody was cashed up. The government was giving you money. We had a case where actually people were pretty, pretty decent on their credit. We're now at record highs on consumer credit, and we're essentially at 13, 14-year lows in terms of savings rates. Going into a period where I think joblessness goes higher, going into a period where I actually think that there can finally be some pressure downward on wages, even though that's not something we're wishing for people, especially around the holidays, I think those are trends that should be concerning for retailers. So the turn in consumer is just about to happen, I guess. But for now, Guy, they're still spending. There's only a month left. I mean, 
hopefully they, they keep their jobs in the next month. But I mean, they, you know, the, the, the sight line for consumers at this point is all right. They've already seen a big rise in interest yeah. rates. They've got their jobs. They've got their wage increases. No, listen, 100 percent. Everything you said makes sense. Everything Steve said makes sense as well. I'm just still trying to read the tea leaves here and say, you know, now you have consumer debt reaching, approaching five trillion dollars with a T. Credit card debt's now north of a trillion. All these things for the first time ever, by the way, in an environment where rates have been moving higher. That's not, to me, a particularly healthy brew of things. But we'll see. The market seems to be discounting a lot. And by the way, a Fed slowing down or being data dependent, that's different than a Fed that's lowering rates. I think we're light years away from that. So you still have a, a very, a very, in my opinion, a very hawkish Fed trying to quell and nail, knock down inflation, which if they indicate they're stopping, will come back and bite them right in the rear end, uh, Melms. Right. Uh, with just under 32 days until Christmas, wow. the countdown is on. Some retailers are seeing signs of cracks in the consumer. Best Buy telling investors the promotional backdrop is considerably more intense than last year. And Dollar Tree, which is also uh, runs Family Dollar, finding inflation is forcing middle and lower income consumers to focus on necessary items. Our next guest warns retailers in general are, quote, borderline desperate right now. Bill Simon is a former U.S. Uh, Walmart U.S. CEO. Bill, always good to see you. Hey, Melissa, how are you? Happy Good. Thanksgiving. Um, you know, happy Thanksgiving to you. Some of the other sort of little data points that we've gotten from the likes of a Best Buy and a Nordstrom and, you know, all these retailers that have reported recently is that consumers are increasingly using their savings. They're increasing the use of credit. They're decreasing the use of debit. Um, so they're taking on debt in order to spend. As somebody who's been in this industry for a long time, at what point do you actually see the pullback in spending to the point where that really hurts retailers? Well, I think it's starting, and, and one of the key met metrics I think everybody has to keep looking at is employment and employment in general. And as long as that remains high, relatively high, and it has, uh, I think we'll be okay for a while. But you're seeing consumers, as you mentioned, be more and more cautious and, and demanding more and more value and more and more deals and buying on deals. And so it's going to be a real interesting Black Friday into the holiday season. Uh, retailers who have uh, put it out there and at deep, deep discounts, have a chance. If you don't, if you didn't, it's going to be tough. I feel like the promotional activity has started really early. Like not just the 10% off or free shipping or the 20% off. I mean, I'm talking about 40% off even before Black Friday. If I'm a consumer, I hear 40% off and I think, you know what, I wait three weeks and it's going to be 60% off even before <laughs> Christmas. I mean, is that is that what retailers are, are thinking as well, that we're willing to cut, cut, cut? Because we don't want to be left with this inventory. We want to get consumers into our door as opposed to our competitors. Well, I just listened to the news, right? You know, supply chains backed up, um, I'm, you know, then it finally broke loose and, you know, Walmart and Target couple of quarters ago had inventories that were unconscionable. Uh, they're down slightly now, but they're still very, very high relative to where they should be. And, you know, so they've, they've had deals for days, as they call it, and really deals for months. Um, and Amazon did an extra prime day to try to move product out. And none of that's really working. I think savvy consumers are waiting for deals. And the deeper the deal, the better the chance. But the better the deal, the worse the margin. And I think that's going to be the retailer's struggle into into the end of the quarter, into the end of the year. 
Hi, Bill. This is Julie. I'm wondering, how are you thinking about the mix of what's out there? It feels like consumers are interested in more need-based products. That has implications for retailer margins, too. So how does that play into this? Yeah, you're exactly right. I think people are buying needs, although during during the holiday season, they do buy wants, but they buy wants on deal. Um, you know, you guys always ask me Walmart or Target. I think right now, Walmart, because of the food, they got the extra trip uh, and the extra volume coming from the food. So they have a better chance to sell their general merchandise than, say, Target does. And so that's really going to be the challenge. Um, how's that mix going to play out? And can they mix the lower margin food business with what's typically higher margin broadlines, general merchandise? But if you got to sell it on deal, you know, then the food margin starts looking pretty good. So it's going to be really challenging for them. So, Bill, I'd like to press a little deeper on the food. This is Tim. Thanks for joining us. And, and if you looked at Walmart's third quarter comps, they were up 8.2%. Uh, over 6% of that was, was, was basically inflation related. And if I look at some of the inputs on food inflation, you know, wheat costs are now back to where they were pre-Ukraine uh, invasion. You have other inputs on the food side coming down. Is that something we should be concerned about? I'm long Walmart, and this has been a, a great run. Um, is that something that's been a strength? Could it be actually at least in a relative context year over year becoming more difficult? Well, I think you got to look at the real numbers. I mean, the, the overall, you know, benchmark numbers for food inflation have been in the, you know, in the lower teens. And, you know, Walmart's only reporting 6% inflation, food inflation. That gives you an idea of the power that they have uh, to keep prices low and to manage prices. Now, granted, they're giving up some margin to do that, but they're building market share. And that's been the play at Walmart for a long, long time. You know, use a difficult time to represent the consumer and take care of the customer, um, hold back a little bit, build market share, and then that market share sticks when when the economy sort of turns around. And that and that's that's been what they're doing. And and you know, hopefully, it'll work for them. You know, Bill, in our continuing game of would you rather Walmart or Target, um, you know, the last time you mentioned you made that switch, you made that switch well, uh, because Target, even though it worked down about a half a billion dollars in, in inventory, it still had one and a half as the end as of the end of the latest quarter, which seems like a, an, an unfathomable amount of stuff that is still waiting to be sold. So as we go deeper in the holiday season, Bill, and that inventory is still sitting there and, and maybe slowly being worked down as we speak. Does it get harder and harder for Target? Do the, its prospects um, for turning that situation around look worse? Should we assume that's just a write down? Brian Cornell has a really good team and he's a terrific retailer. So I have confidence that they'll figure it out. But just imagine what a billion and a half dollars worth of merchandise looks like. How many trucks, how many container ships is that that's just sort of sitting there? I think what you're going to see as we get into the, into the, you know, the selling season here towards the end of the year is very, very aggressive pricing from Target. They indicated that in their release when they lowered their projection for the fourth, fourth quarter. I don't, this is their chance to get rid of, to move the inventory, and I think they're going to be aggressive in price, and it'll hurt their margin to do it, but it's the right thing. All right, Bill, great to speak with you. Happy Thanksgiving. You you Bye now. Happy gobble, Thanksgiving. Gobble, gobble, as we like to say. Bill Simon. Uh, Guy, Damian, what's the trade here? <laughs> I mean, Target's going to be like, buy a Lego set, get this patio furniture for free. I mean, that's what it's going to come down to. No, I hate to say it. I mean, it's not fair, but it happens to be true. Target's basically got back half of the move we saw from 180 down to 150 here at 165. The trade has been to me and will continue to be dollar gen into earnings, I believe, December 1st. Made an all-time high, I think, earlier this week or late last week. 
Dollar Gen works really well in this environment. All right, coming up, a fast money first. Chart of the week on a Wednesday. That's right, we'll drill into one name that's on our radar because today's our Friday. We'll reveal that next. Plus, financials on fire over the past month. Should you bank on these names for more profits? Stick around, those trades, and much more when Fast Money returns. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. It might only be Wednesday, but we're off tomorrow for Gobble Gobble Day. Oh, yeah. Um, We're off Friday. Mm. So we thought we'd bring you a very special edition of Chart of the Week. Take a look at the OIH down 2% since Monday. The oil services ETF surged over 40% in October, but has basically been flat this month, up only a percent. Guy, um, on our call today, you said energy is reaching a point of no return. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I know Tim knows what I mean. First and foremost, you know, Steve's had a great call on the underlying commodity. Dan as well. Tim has been on top of these equities. But the reason why I brought OIH to the the desk here is because we've basically gotten the levels we last saw in May, June. And we're stalling out here. We're stalling out while crude oil is now going into contango. And a lot of these products are now under pressure. So if these stocks, which have proved themselves considerably well... In during the demise of the commodity, now they have to prove themselves. So the point of no return comes for both the XLE and the OIH. The OIH absolutely needs to close above 320 over the next week. Otherwise, this double top is going to be in place. So the bulls have done a great job, but now they really have to prove themselves, Melms. Steve? Yeah, everything is rolled over. And you see, the only thing that's going to stop oil from uh, crude, uh, West Texas Intermediate, is going, to, is going to be the uh, refilling of the SPR. So President Biden has said that he wants to replenish that at around $70. We're right here. So that, if, you're, if you're in a market, Melissa, and you know you're stopped out against the government to be a buyer, you're probably going to be buying that commodity ahead of the government, knowing that you could turn around and sell it to him or her. 
So I think that I, I have that $65 a barrel target. I'm going to stay with that. I think we probably cut through 70 really quickly and then pop right back up above it. It, it, I, the levels on oil, I, I, I don't care as much about as an investor in Schlumberger, especially because Schlumberger, to me, is, is peaking towards the type of profitability they had in 2016. And I look at, at 22% of, of the OIH, it's, it's a very significant dynamic. You have uh, drilled but uncompleted wells that are at it, like historic lows. You have dynamics in terms of international rig count that are just growing and growing. And this is the dynamics around the supply side of oil. Uh, are, are not going to change the profitability here. By the way, a uh, quick trivia question for you. Point of no return, um, a band from the Midwestern part of the name, it, named after a state. You know I don't know this. Kansas. Guy? Oh, Kansas, Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was fantastic. You get, extra, you get extra pumpkin pie for dessert. That was fantastic. I'm so pleased with myself. I actually knew something. Awesome. All right, there's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Big banks seeing big profits. Should you cash in on the financials here? That trade, next. Plus, COVID chaos in China. Violent protests breaking out at Foxconn, the world's biggest Apple iPhone factory. We'll bring you those details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. The financials serving up some big gains this month. BlackRock, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan among the leaders of the sector soars into December, far outpacing gains in the broader markets. So can the banks and brokers keep it going? Tim, you think so? I do. I do. I, you know, it's interesting because if you look at banks on the charts, they're actually the first to get through that 200-day. If you look at them from that June low, I think they've outperformed the S&P uh, something like 17%. So uh, at a time when there was more stress in the markets, you had a period where actually banks I think, ironically, because we were so concerned about credit concerns. I, I just think that those numbers that we got uh, in this quarter, third quarter numbers, really reinforced the fact we got a fresh look in terms of at least core businesses. And even without the mortgage strength and the investment banking strength, a money center bank in this environment is minting money. Yeah. Julie? Yeah, no, I think from a fundamental perspective, you're seeing really positive uh, attributes outside of mortgage. Mortgage, I think, is becoming pretty challenging. And I think if you look at, like, you look at BAC's October results in terms of, you know, charge-offs, everything is starting to creep higher in terms of the credit quality getting more difficult. But I think they're well-prepared. I think they've, you know, done a great job transmitting this information. I think Jamie Dimon, you know, we owe him a lot for his ability to explain where we are in the market and where he thinks directionally we're going. But I think generally speaking, they're pretty well positioned to withstand this. We know after the results of the FDIC, their living trusts are in good shape, except for Citigroup. But the yield curve, the yield curve guy, it's still not working in, in banks' favor. And, and Karen has walked through the case many, many times to why that doesn't matter. The yield curve doesn't necessarily matter that much when it comes to banks' earnings. Um, but for a long time, it traded along with that yield curve. 
Unfortunately, the brilliant Kay Fine is not with us this evening, so you're stuck with me. But I will say, you know who doesn't give a, a monkey's patoot about a yield curve? It's <laughs> Goldman Sachs because, I mean, if you look at what fixed income currency and commodities has done the last couple quarters, they've crushed it. And I think they will continue in this environment. That's why the stock, and we talked about this when it was trading down around 280, said at book value, it's just ridiculously cheap. That's why it's now approaching its all-time high that we made in the summer of 2021. And I think it's probably going to get there. Comes in around 415. This is a fantastic environment uh, for Goldman Sachs. And they're finally being rewarded for what goes on in FIC. Steve, in your face-ripping rally that uh, goes on to the end of the year, do financials out continue their outperformance? Yeah, and, and just look at it this way. So the yield curve is in, inverted the most since, what, 1982? I think that was the stat. So it's over, over 80 basis points. So to your point, the, the market hasn't really cared about the yield curve. And if that yield curve improves, these names are going to fly higher. So I think you're okay in the financials. I, you know, in terms of just, I was selling some upside calls in Money Center Banks today because they've had such a great run out just to January, where I think we're going to wake up in the new year and focus on credit. All right, coming up, violent protests erupting in China at the world's biggest iPhone factory. Was this, what does this mean for Apple? More on that story ahead. Plus, shares of Silvergate are soaring today. We'll hit the options pits for a look and at what's behind this massive move. More Fast Money in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on markets today. Stocks higher as the Fed minutes suggest smaller rate hikes ahead. The Dow up 95 points. The S&P adding 23 and the Nasdaq leading the pack up nearly a percent. Meantime, crude oil closing more than 3 percent lower as the G7 looks to cap Russian oil prices, although above where it currently is trading. Gasoline inventories in the U.S. also growing by more than analysts expected. Meantime, protests at Foxconn's flagship iPhone plant in China could be taking a bite out of Apple's production plans. The unrest in the city of Zhengzhou comes two weeks after Apple warned of production delays due to China's zero-COVID policy. Eunice Yun is in China with the very latest. Eunice. Melissa, Apple supplier Foxconn said that as of tonight, the operations at that facility in central China are normal. This after videos emerged online, obtained by AP, but not verified by NBC, of people describing themselves as Foxconn workers, clashing with authorities in hazmat suits, shouting, give us our pay. The protesters complain they're being forced to work for weeks longer than agreed upon in isolated COVID conditions to receive extra pay and bonuses. They also fear virus spread at the plant. Foxconn says it's communicating with workers and the government to avoid a recurrence and is offering workers compensation. Now, this protest comes as China's COVID outbreak appears to be going national. iPhone City, Zhengzhou, announced it's putting its downtown area in lockdown or effective lockdown until next Tuesday and conducting mass testing. Megacity Chongqing is now in effective lockdown. Chengdu, which just emerged from a lockdown in September, is now mass testing. Shanghai canceled an auto event. Manufacturing hub Shenzhen and Sanya in China's version of Hawaii are imposing more restrictions for public places. This after Beijing and areas around the capital have become near ghost towns and export hub Guangzhou has imposed even heavier controls. Melissa? All right, Eunice, thank you, Eunice Yoon in Beijing for us. Um, there's a lot to unpack there in terms of the COVID lockdown, taking another, you know, 
beating on China's economy and then also the impact specifically on Apple because, you know, the workers' allegations of not being paid, not getting their bonuses, that's not a good look for Apple, Steve. Yeah, it's not. And, and, you know, when you look at the performance uh, for Apple year to date, it's down 15 percent. There's not a whole lot of reason with these headlines that are coming through to make you want to jump out and buy the stock. I'm still long it, but it's a long term hold. I've, I've owned it what seems like forever. I think better days will be ahead. I think they'll figure out how to work around China for production. And also, let's not let's not forget they're not innovators. But they are perfectors of what's out there. So it's been a long time since we've actually seen Apple come out with something exciting, whether it's artificial intelligence or virtual reality. The car has been put to the side. But I think we're we're probably going to see some sort of uh, tailwinds coming through Apple. Everyone's counting it out right now, and I don't think they should. I tell you, I agree with that, but I also don't think Apple needs to do anything innovative here. I mean, we've, we've, we've pushed back on Apple innovation for a while, and if you think about where the Pro and the Pro Max and where they've been received on these phones, I mean, I think we've got lead times of 43 days or something last I was looking, and even if China slows down a little bit. By the way, that's one of the reasons why I, I think uh, some of these headlines out of Foxconn are scarier as they relate to that relationship and what Apple might need to do to diversify from Foxconn in China, uh, less about more delays on phones and what it means for Apple. Because eventually, right now, they're going to buy those phones. As a guy, I agree with Steve, too. I don't want to own this company right now either. I own it in a few accounts, but passively, I, I think in terms of your trading Apple, you're going to get a better shot. Right now, it trades eight or nine turns to the S&P valuation. I think it's expensive. All right. For more on what this means for Apple, let's bring in Loop Managing Partner Gene Munster. He's on the fast line tonight. Gene, always uh, good to speak with you. Hi, Melissa. Hi there. As I understand it, Zhengzhou specifically produces more than 80 percent of the iPhone 14 and somewhere about 85 percent of the Pro. And so I'm wondering if you think this will this impact holiday sales or has all that stuff been made? No, it hasn't been made there right now. If you do order an iPhone, it's going to push just after the holiday. But what we've seen less about today and the, up, uh, the friction today, the protest today, more about what's happened over the past month. Those lead times have gone from three to four weeks to five to six weeks. And those in part because of some of the shutdowns. And really, when you boil it all down, it's probably going to be just about a percent and a half, maybe two percent negative impact on Apple's uh, December quarter. And of course, to Tim's point, and I think Steve's as well, is that they'll just recoup these in the March quarter. It is uh, the pain of December ultimately is the gain of March, but that gives some perspective about what this means. Uh, those are two very important products, and they're difficult to get right now. And what's going on with China production isn't helping matters. I understand this whole notion that you're going to order the phone or the belief that you're going to order the phone anyway. So the sales will be gotten just, you know, later. They're just sales not denied, but sales delayed. Um, does the changing economic environment change that calculus at all? I mean, if things are deteriorating, consumers get a little bit more concerned about their spending wherewithal. You know, do some of those sales go away, you think? Well, my answer today is there have been if you'd have asked me the day before Apple reported their September quarter. And if you'd have asked me then, I would have said, yeah, you have to assume that we're going to see some impact. There will obviously be some impact in the consumer slows, but what we what we saw in September was remarkable. They had a massive comp, 47% uh, growth comp on iPhone, and they grew 4%. Uh, 
uh, that tells me that people still are gravitating to these products. And um, I think that uh, no company won't be, every company will be impacted by a, a slowdown, but I think Apple will actually do, despite their high price products, I think they'll actually do well. And I'll just point this out. For those who actually still go to stores, which is a small group of people, and those who go to malls, which probably is even a smaller group of people, go to the mall that has, uh, go to the Apple store. I suspect that the large percentage of the people in the mall are going to be in that Apple store you're going to see over the weekend. And I think that's testimony to these products are still uh, essentially the fabric of how people live their lives today. And yes, there are going to be bumps in the road, but I think that that is one thing that I've learned more in the last couple of months. Hey, Gene, what are we going to expect something coming out of Apple, whether it's artificial intelligence or, or VR? I, no one's talking about the car anymore, but when can we expect something exciting? I feel as if they're way behind uh, the eight ball on this. Well, uh, Steve, we just came out with our holiday buying guide, and as part of that, we, we put predictions about products that we expect next year just to kind of have some fun with it. And one of them is these mixed reality uh, glasses we think they're going to show around WDC. Mark Gurman has talked a lot about this, done some great reporting on it. I agree with his reporting. Ultimately, I think we're going to see that headset. I think it's going to be for developers only, high price, but I think it's going to be an example where people step back and say, Apple's really innovating here. I think that that is uh, an exciting uh, piece. And so I think that we're, they're going to uh, flex their muscle a little bit on innovation next year. It doesn't hit the income statement probably for a few more years, but they're not going away on this augmented reality theme despite all the metaverses issues. All right, Gene, thank you. Thank Happy you, Turkey Monster. Day. Sounds like it needs a recall. Gene Munster, I know, a like raspy. a Mucinex kind of thing. Um, Guy, what's the trade on Apple here? Well, I mean, what Gene says is unfortunately true. I mean, there'll be millions of people tomorrow Thanksgiving, and half of those people will be sitting around looking at their stupid Apple phones, which is, you know, that to me is not uh, particularly speak volumes about the fabric of the United States and I guess humanity at large. With that said, I think, I think Tim is right. I think there'll be better opportunities to buy the stock. It went from earnings from 144 down to 138, up to 158. Back to 138, and I think we're smack in the middle of the range. So I think you wait for a better entry point here. Is, is it a value stock? Is it a value stock, Julie? No, I mean, I, I, it's hard to argue that this is a value stock, given that the growth is pretty challenging and it's a high-priced product. I agree that, you know, look, if we can't buy the product today, you probably will buy it next quarter. But I wonder about that. I wonder about people who are like, hey, you've got an iPhone 12. I'm going to upgrade you to a 14 as your Christmas present. They don't have it. I don't think you come and buy them that 14 in March, right? It doesn't. And I think a lot of the challenge with Apple is that they haven't had a lot of innovation. So you don't have a ton of reason to upgrade your phones. So in an economic recession, you better believe that people aren't going to be buying $1,000 phones. Like, sorry, it's just not going to happen. So maybe we'll spend less time on our phones and guy will finally be cheerful. It's going to take uh, a well, lot. Careful, careful about that. <laughs> take a lot. Uh, coming up, the FTX fallout, new developments in the saga, sparking a heated debate over crypto regulation. The details ahead. Plus, shares of Deer seeing green. The ad company hitting an all-time high today. We'll bring you the tractor trade. That's next.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Deer topping the tape today. Shares jumping 5%, hitting an all-time high. The company reporting better-than-expected results on the top and the bottom lines for the latest quarter. Also coming out with a strong outlook for 2023, setting new infrastructure projects on the horizon. Um, Tim, you own it. I do. Uh, like a little lawnmower kind of deer. Yeah, thing. easy, easy. I call it a tractor. Some might call it a lawnmower, but I nothing nothing runs like a deer in my house when when I'm allowed to do that. And 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 I'm a big fan. Although they say if you listen to some of the competitors, there's deteriorating demand in some of these smaller tractors. Um, and and actually, I think those are trends uh, as opposed to the ones in real tractor land and some of that macro. I think it's extraordinary. The biggest issue for the stock, which by the way has outperformed the S&P by 120% since July of 21. 120%. And I'm not bottom picking like the low in COVID. And if you did that, it's actually 140. So it it comes down to multiple at some point, as it often does, and at 15 times, ah, I'm not sure. Yeah. It also depends on whether or not farmers feel rich enough to spend on things. And part of that is crop prices. Um, If we see inflation come down, crop prices can go lower. But, you know, the Ukraine-Russia um, dynamic could keep crop prices a little bit higher. Steve, I don't know. Yeah, I think crop prices are coming down. And a lot of this is sort of the same way with Walmart, where it was food inflation. So as Tim said, this is farm equipment inflation. And you also had a parts shortage. But we're looking at all-time highs right here in deer. I'd be a seller, not a buyer here. But there's one thing, infrastructure deal. So I should say this, infrastructure spending is going to benefit both cat and deer. Cat has been a laggard in the group. You might have a little room to make up in cat, but I wouldn't be a buyer of either one of them too aggressively at these levels. Yeah. Uh, Guy? The thought of Tim with his tractor with like a piece of straw in his mouth and a cutoff T-shirt is just too good. He should send a picture I mean, it's fantastic. That being said, I'm sort of with Steve. And Tim's had a great call. But look at where the stock traded up to in March. Look where we closed today. We traded about three times normal volume. I think today's the opportunity to take some money off the table. I think you're going to get a better entry point. Great company, reasonable valuation. I think it exhausted itself today. All right, coming up, new developments in the FTX saga. Who's getting involved in the heated debates? It is sparking. More on that when Fast Money returns. Be sure to stay tuned at the top of the hour for a CNBC special taking stock. We're diving into the state of the consumer this holiday season and what investors should expect as we get ready to close out the volatile year. That is coming up 6 p.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Meantime, shares of Silvergate Capital soaring this afternoon on news that Block One founder Brendan Bloomer has taken a 9% stake in the crypto-focused bank that makes him the firm's largest shareholder. And option traders are betting that means good things ahead for Silvergate. Uh, Brian Settlin joins us now with the action. Brian. Yeah, they are betting that good things are ahead, Melissa. And we saw call activity really start to pick up. They were trading about two and a half times normal average daily volume. And really the most interesting trade to me was the December 40 calls they traded for about 35 cents over a span of about two hours, about a thousand of those traded. And that is a significant upside play to this stock. I think the reason why you're seeing these call buyers come in, when you get a little bit of news, good news here, short interest has been building. So certainly a short squeeze could be on. Maybe this is somebody that's short a million shares and wants to protect their upside with the call. But also maybe it's somebody really playing for a significant pop to the upside. When you look at Silvergate, this stock was a perfect proxy for Bitcoin. It basically traded lockstep with it. 
and it broke lower when all the FTX news hit, and they said that 10% of their accounts were at FTX. But now that could just be a one-time charge right here. So, so folks, this, this stock could trade back up, get back lock and step with the price of Bitcoin, and maybe there's a pop to the upside still to come. At least that's what some of these call buyers are playing it to the upside. All right. Uh, Brian, thanks. Brian Stetland. A new development on the FTX collapse. The head of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission will testify next week in a Senate hearing. Last night, CME Group Chairman Terry Duffy joined us to detail his meeting with Sam Bankman-Fried back in March, a meeting where Duffy told SBF, you're a fraud, you're an absolute fraud. So right away, my suspicions were up. Why is there so much pressure coming for this application? Then when I met with him, I knew right away, I said, this is a joke. He wanted to list all asset classes, mine, the intercontinental exchanges, and everybody else's under his model, which would have been, as I said, a biblical disaster. Duffy had previously spoken about FTX in front of Congress back in May. And in that hearing, there was a contentious series of exchanges with California Representative Ro Khanna. I'm not a crypto expert, sir. I list Bitcoin and Ether. Well, yeah, you certainly have opinions about crypto. I do. I have opinions about an application, sir, not about cryptocurrency. I can't just go over what you're reading. Capital is is not the same as margin, Congressman. Well, sir, I I want you to... After this, submit something that is accurate, recognizing you're giving testimony to the United States Congress. You don't know much about cryptocurrencies. You're opining on cryptocurrencies. And then you're giving false statements to the Congress <laughs> that you aren't even staying. Uh, you weren't even uh, knowing that you're submitting. You write FTX, quote, has no capital requirements for participants. That's just false. Sir, I'll be happy to read my testimony back to you uh, if you would like. But if you want to make this into a court of law, I'm happy to participate in that. Well, as it's well. not a court of law. It's that you can't give false statements to the United States Congress. You I'm well aware, sir. I've testified in front of this committee over 50 times. We asked Duffy last night about that argument. He said he'd be open to debate the representative anytime. I got reprimanded by a guy that didn't have the courage to show up. But he had to come on a Zoom named Ro Khan out of California telling me I didn't know what I was talking about. I don't think Mr. Khan has a clue what he's talking about. So I'm prepared to debate him at all costs or at any time. We invited Representative Khanna to join us. His office says he's unavailable at this time but can hopefully join sometime later next month. We've also invited the CFTC chairman to come on the show. I tweeted this and, you know, we, we chose to play that exchange to show the audience exactly, um, you know, what the degree of reprimand was. Because looking back on this, it is amazing that a congressman would have discounted the chairman of the CME so much and so readily, Guy. Yeah, I'm going to be careful before Thanksgiving and choose my words properly here. But it it was rude. And you have to wonder, where did that come from? I mean, where was the vitriol coming from? And in retrospect, Terry was spot on. As a matter of fact, I mean, he was a bit of a soothsayer because everything that he said was going to happen, happened. And the fact that the congressperson doesn't have time to join us or be, see you next month, I mean, that's just to me, and I'll say it, it's, it's cowardly, to be honest with you, given the amount of vitriol that he threw at Terry then. And this is the same Terry Duffy, by the way, that called BS on John Corzine years before that. So clearly the man knows of what he speaks, and he should not be discounted. And by the way, his testimony, I'm sure, was a sworn testimony, and he is, he's not a liar. No reason to lie, nor would he do it 
in front of Congress. Well, not only that, they, you know, what the exchange is bringing could bring to digital assets, and this is where the CME, I, I think, is, is going to play a major role. Um, this is coming out of a crisis like this. This is exactly what they do. They provide risk management. They provide a framework. They provide uh, accountability. They provide rules. And, and I think that that's what you know, the exchange we just watched with Rokana, I, I, I there was two different languages being spoken, um, especially when a guy who does this for a living um, was being asked to opine on what risks are when you don't have this kind of a framework. And that's exactly what the CME could do. Yeah. Steve? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, maybe I'll choose my words less wisely than Guy. Um, they, there was a lot of money spread around uh, Washington, and it sounds like people bought into this idea because they had a tremendous amount of donations sprinkled their way. And Congress is always pointing their gun at practitioners. I'll take a practitioner and I'll take someone like Terry any day of the week over a congressman. Yeah, easy. Uh, until, until they have to hold hearings about what went wrong, right? Then, then all of a sudden things change. Um, Julie, it's... it's Amazing. You know, I, I talked to a former Fed president earlier today on the closing bell, and I asked him about this notion of free money contributing to things like FTX. And he said, absolutely. Free money leads to malinvestment. <laughs> Do you think that, I mean, are we seeing that here? When the tide goes out, are we going to see many of these other sorts of frauds or, you know, bad investments surface? Yeah, I mean, I'll choose my words least wisely of all because I got to get ready for Thanksgiving and that, that <laughs> takes time to prepare. But um, for sure, I think the as embarrassing as all of this has become, even from a regulatory standpoint, I think the, the group that has egg on their face more than anyone is the venture community that kind of blindly backed all of these businesses with so few parameters. And we're talking about scales and numbers and customers you know, in a regulatory environment, particularly on the banking side, that's that's pretty, pretty covered up. So I think I think that's the venture community is actually going to look pretty bad going forward. All right. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade on this uh, hump day, eve of gobble gobble day, turkey day guy. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Lockheed Martin, LMT. Steve Grasso. Seasonality trade, UNH. December's a great month for it. Happy Thanksgiving. Julie Beal. Uh, infrastructure trade, Bentley software, Bentley systems. Happy Thanksgiving. Tim Seymour. Happy Thanksgiving to the little people. Um, we told about banks that have had a big run. How about fading a little bit, selling some upside calls in January on Citigroup? Happy Turkey Day, everybody. Turkey. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here on Monday. A CNBC special, Taking Stock with Brian Sullivan, starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.